On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and information affecting the ASC industry, discuss the potential effects of the 2020 election, prepare for the 2021 CMS ASC HOPD rule, review recent experiences with centers, and in our focus segment, talk about credentialing. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 115 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for November 8th, 2020. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and Owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Well, that was painful. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we haven't recorded getting in almost a month, yeah. and uh, we, uh, I think, we just spent the last half hour just getting <laughs> the equipment to record properly. So, I yeah. think it's working well. But I think it is mm-hmm. uh, kind of an indication that this lovely board of ours here, which is two and a half years old, is coming toward the end of its useful life. And we do know that we are way behind in recording. And as I said, this is about a month since the last time. Uh, We promise we are trying to get caught up. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to have two episodes this week because uh, we just recorded on Friday a a special episode or Mm -hmm. a special recording um, interview with uh, SIS. So very exciting about what's going on here. And we're going to jump into it pretty quickly. However, I did want to mention that we uh, did get away to South Carolina for a while, didn't we? We did. We went to Hilton Head. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're such uh, exercise freaks. <laughs> yeah, not not so much. But <laughs> we, we went uh, out on our little bicycle. We, little bicycles. I did land in the bushes once. You did. I did I a tip I can't believe you just admitted that. Luckily, <laughs> luckily, it wasn't in the middle of the road or anything, and then I got my... I got my uh, not sea legs, like my, my bicycle <laughs> legs. legs or something, but, you know, then we had fun doing that. And, and then and we, 14-hour uh, trip and, home, so we got yeah. across the border before the uh, the new... Uh, the uh, new regulations, yeah. I guess, came came in. So we both did get pet tested, and I don't even know if I told you, John, but my test did come back. Oh, wonderful. It came back, actually, it was like a day and a half. They said oh, it would wow. be three days and yeah. at, at the very least, so my that was came. good. We were yeah, both negative. Good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm getting ready to become a grandfather. Uh, ten yeah. days away, nine days away, I think right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you are celebrating your granddaughter. I think she was just born when we recorded the last episode, if I remember right. I think she's about six weeks, just over six weeks old now. So we yeah. had her over 
here for the first time. I get to, I got we, to hold her. She's yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. I think the cutest part, though, was when Rosie, our little puppy, uh, heard her crying and was whining in the other room. Yeah, she wanted to go rescue her. She wanted to go rescue her. So. so that's our puppy update. Uh, Rosie's doing very well. Yeah. Um, I was, as many of you know, I'm a, a minister uh, also, and I've been referring to the puppy. And uh, I told Sue today that they're, you know, that you haven't had a chance to come hear me preach at this particular church. And they said that, uh, that the people there said, oh, don't forget to bring Sue and the puppy. <laughs> I'm not sure how you bring a puppy to church. But. Yeah, I don't think we will. She did have her uh, puppy class. That's right. The first one she had with another dog yeah. so far since the whole COVID thing. So she's Rosie and, and the other little student was Roxy, another little golden retriever. So yeah, that was kind of to fun. see them all together. Well, I guess one of the major reasons that we're behind in recording is we have been, yet again, extremely busy with ambulatory healthcare strategies. It's been uh, the, the growth, the, the demand right now for regulatory services is huge, and uh, we have been struggling to uh, onboard all of our new clients that we've picked up during this time, onboarding new employees, mm-hmm. um, which has been uh, quite a challenge. It's just been a very, very busy period of time. We really haven't had a break, except, and, and even when we were on vacation, mm-hmm. We I pretty think much got us, a full weekend. Yeah, we did. And I, I don't think uh, we really logged any uh, serious vacation time. But we were able to – I mean, don't – I don't think anybody's really uh, feeling sorry <laughs> for us. Yeah, feel bad. <laughs> no, none of our employees certainly thought that uh, – uh, felt bad for us, so – um, and as we all know, um, the election is passed now, thank goodness. Uh, one of the uh, joys and concerns that they mentioned in church today is the joy that the election season is over and we don't have to listen to any more political ads, which I, mm-hmm. I agree with. Uh, as we stand here today, we're recording on the 8th, I believe. It looks like the Democrats will maintain control of the House of Representatives and take control of the White House. Uh, the Senate is still very much up in the air, but it does appear to be leaning toward the Republicans. So there's two major concerns uh, related to the, or that would concern the ASC industry going into the election. Uh, the first is the tax implications of a reversal of the uh, 2017 uh, tax cuts that provide a tax release for many small businesses such as ASCs. And, and second, the possibility of a Medicare for all uh, or any other type of payment uh, uh, reform that could, would, Im, uh, would reduce uh, reimbursements for ASCs. As we know, there's no such thing as increasing reimbursements for ASCs. Uh-huh. Anything that happens uh, would no doubt reduce that reimbursement. I did, wanted to give a quick refresher to uh, the 2017 tax cut and just kind of give a little education for – we don't really talk a lot about you know the taxes in surgery centers and mm-hmm. and yet it has a huge impact on us and, and a lot of the conversations that probably occur at board meetings uh, might go over the heads of, of people that aren't familiar, especially nurses who haven't uh, gone through um, you know, financial training. So uh, pass-through entities or pass-through tax entities such as uh, limited liability companies, which is the, the type of tax entity that is most common in ASCs, are not taxed by themselves. In other words, an, uh, an, a limited liability company such as most ASCs are, they're not actually – they actually don't pay a federal income tax. Uh, but their net income is passed on to the owners and it is taxed at the 
on the owner's personal taxes uh, and at the tax level that those uh, owners are at. And most of our owners are physicians, for example, and most likely um, taxed at the highest tax levels. So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, known better as TCJA, uh, was the massive tax reform law that took effect in 2018. It was uh, passed in 2017 and established a new tax deduction for owners of pass-through businesses such as our LLCs. Pass-through owners who qualify can deduct up to 20% of their net business income from their income taxes, reducing their effective income tax rate by 20%. This tax deduction began in 2018 and is scheduled to last through 2025. That is, it will end on January 1st, 2026 unless extended by Congress or removed by Congress. This tax deduction is one of the provisions that would most likely be reversed if the 2000 tax cut, 2017 tax cuts are reversed. And that's been one of the things uh, that the, uh, the Democrats have put on their, on their list of uh, actions. The 2017 tax cuts uh, that took effect in 2018 be- provided a significant stimulus to the economy and is arguably one of the major reasons for the economic growth in 2018 and 2019 and the post-pandemic growth that we're starting to see right now. Should those tax cuts be reversed, we would most likely see some scaling back of uh, ASC operations as owners seek to reduce, actually to increase their income in order to offset their higher taxes uh, because we know they're, they're not going to stand and still, basically, if their taxes go up, they're going to want to be able to offset that in some way. We would also likely see higher expenses as other businesses do the same thing. Um, since the tax program also reduced the ta- corporate tax rate uh, to 21%, which is more in line with taxes and other countries. Uh, Our second concern is around the potential changes to the health care reimbursement. And while, quite frankly, those are less likely to occur, even if the Democrats do take the Senate, we should all still be concerned about a program such as uh, what's referred to as Medicare for All. Medicare reimbursement tends to be one of the lowest payers uh, that we have in ASCs. And if all payers revert to the Medicare reimbursement rate, many, if not most, ASCs would not survive in their present state with the lower reimbursement. So we're obviously going to keep a close eye on developments over the next few years. I think um, the fact that it seems like we're going to end up with a divided government probably means um, that most of these major concerns that we had probably uh, won't come to fruition. I don't think we're going to see huge tax increases if there is a divided government and like, uh, likewise, I don't think we're going to see major changes to our healthcare reimbursement uh, moving into you know to the next year. Uh, I you know I always uh, state this: one of the benefits of owning a regulatory compliance company like mm-hmm. ours is we win no matter what, right? Because one thing we do know is that no matter what happens. Uh, whoever home, uh, is uh, is in power, they're going to make more regulations, and and uh, unfortunately, our poor clients are going to need some guidance in in uh, in trying to muddle through them. So, uh, we'll keep a very close eye on what goes on here and try to keep you up to date. And of course, um, the twenty twenty one CMS HOPD rates. And ASC rates uh, should be coming out any day now. We're on uh, November 8th. Uh, usually they come out within the first week in uh, November. Obviously, they're a little bit late this year as they were, as were the, um, you know, the preliminary rates that came out in, in July. Uh, so we'll keep a close eye on that and we will have a special episode to talk about it. And we're, that's going to be a major topic of conversation in the fall financial management and reimbursement conference that uh, we're going to be putting on in December. Yep. So, Sue, why don't you kind of talk a little bit about some of the recent news? Okay, well, first I wanted to say happy perioperative nurses week to all the nurses out there. That's this coming week. And I wanted to say congratulations to Gramercy Surgery Center, which, which is, is one, of, one of our clients. Yep, yeah. one of our clients. Um, they were ranked number one and number two by Newsweek um, for ASCs in New York. 
and AORN and Outpatient Surgery Magazine are asking for input on how they can better meet the needs of ambulatory surgery centers. I've noticed, and we've mentioned this on previous podcasts, they really seem to be trying to um, provide a more targeted services to the to ASCs. And their their conference was arguably one of the best uh, mm-hmm. of the of the virtual conferences that occurred in the last year. They really did a superb job. I was able to watch over your shoulder a couple times as mm-hmm. you were listening to some of the great sessions that occurred. So there's a short survey that's available until November 12th, so I, not much more time. But I believe you have to be a member of AORN, and, and they probably would have sent you an email with the link. But I just wanted to encourage you to watch out for that and take part if you can. Well, as we all know, surveys are changing right now, and Joint Commission has uh, put out a notice that they'll be using different methods to increase safety during surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're making uh, more use of audio and video calls to decrease the number of people that are present during a survey, conduct medical record reviews with screen sharing or other technology to avoid sitting next to others for extended periods of time. They even talked about possibly simulating certain activities that could be considered high risk. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, Sue, one of the things that I've been doing recently is uh, for the mock surveys I've been performing, um, I'll do uh, two Zoom sessions Mm -hmm. and then cut my visit. I still do a visit, of course, but I cut that visit down to a one-day visit Mm -hmm. as opposed to a a one-and-a-half to two-day visit. And that has actually been extremely popular with our clients and I think has been very productive because um, some of these sessions, some of these Zoom sessions Mm -hmm. have I mean, like 10, 12 people, which is just, even even in a normal survey is not possible, mock survey is not possible. Mm. Um, so that's been very, uh, I think I, I think that's going to be a permanent uh, change, actually, mm-hmm. in the way we do mock surveys because of its effectiveness there. Yeah, you're decreasing how many people you're in actually seeing in person, so, right. so you're being protective, but you're actually getting to touch base with a lot more people. And they, and they I, you know, there's something, too, about... I guess it's, you know, we, we talk about Zoom not being quite as personal mm-hmm. as being there in person. And I think that allows people to be a little bit more open about asking questions, mm-hmm. surprisingly. At least that's been my uh, perception of this. And uh, so I've been very happy with that. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I think what we're starting to see is maybe some of the uh, uh, the accreditation organizations might be leaning a little bit toward, you know, making use of that type of technology also. So let's hope that that is something that they're considering out there. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a lot of guidance. I mean, I, I work with AAAC, obviously. They're, uh, they haven't been as forthright in talking about the way they're doing this, but uh, as Joint Commission has been in uh, in in putting this notice out, but uh, that is indeed what's happening with us during surveys. We're much more careful about how many people we have around us. You know, obviously being very careful about the way we do things, and mm-hmm. and we've we have been told as surveyors that you know whatever we have to do to accommodate the new ne- uh, needs of the organization, we certainly don't want twenty people in the operating room now. You know, we want to yep. decrease that risks. And uh, I've done I've done surveys in the past where I've just cracked the door. A little bit to, to listen to what's going on up until the point of the uh, of the timeout, and then uh, then sneak out and then just watch the window as I observe the procedure. So. Yep. And to that end, uh, version forty one uh, for Triple H C standards is now out for both non MDS uh, organizations and MDS uh, Medicare deemed status organizations, and it does provide a seamless transition for quality improvement efforts and and uh, features. And it became effective November first. It's much more concise and organized format. There's less repetition, which for surveyors like ourselves has been great, you know, sometimes. And, and I think even as, as centers, you know this full well, Sue, you might get a, uh, a list of uh, citations for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a center and, 
there might be 20 citations and 15 of them are the exact the same, same thing, thing. <laughs> worded in different locations. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, the non-deemed and deemed status programs uh, uh, scoring systems are now aligned. So uh, I do feel that the new standards, the version 41 standards, are a little bit easier to read and, and to go through. And I, I need to also point out that I keep referring to version 41. They've gone away from using years to designate the standards okay. uh, to uh, version numbers, similar to what uh, Joint Commission does. And I found some statistics on the FDA website about kind of what they're doing during the pandemic to keep everybody safe. Um, there are 238 tests authorized for emergency use at this point. 550 drug development programs are in the planning stages, and the FDA has reviewed more than 350 treatment drug trials. Um, there's five emergency use authorizations for COVID and conditions caused by COVID. There is only one treatment currently approved for use in, in COVID, though it's, that's Beclery or Remdesivir. Um, they have identified more than 1,127 fraudulent or unproven medical products related to COVID-19. So, you that, know. That's, un, that's an, actually all of these efforts are unbelievable, mm -hmm. but the number of fraudulent and unproven medical products is, is frightening. I, I, I find yeah. that, you know, we get called on periodically by family members and friends, mm -hmm. you know, to, uh, opine on things that they read on the internet or on, yeah. uh, Facebook and et cetera. So I'm glad to see the, uh, FDA is on, is on top of that, but man, 1,127. I know. It seems, well, like everybody will hear on, on our interview with SIS, they, they referred to people as bad actors that a lot of people come out of the woodwork and yeah. take advantage of any type of um, bad situation, unfortunately. Yeah, too much time at home in front of a computer, too, I think. Yep, and they're continuing to find hand sanitizers that are labeled as containing ethyl alcohol, but are testing positive for methanol, which is a dangerous situation. So Yeah, we actually um, had a scare because we had bought two gallons of uh, something mm -hmm. in it. Uh, accident actually ended up accidentally showing up on the list, and yeah. it wasn't uh, that. But and yeah, it's more with ingestion. But they think if if you're using a lot of it, or if it's a child, that there can be some absorption. So it's well, best I think to if stay away from that and checking. Yeah, if you sanitize yeah. your hands and then immediately use uh, yep. uh, use it to, yeah, those hands to eat, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it would be a problem. So they did have lots of good information and infographics on everything from types of testing to vaccine progress. Um, and there was also information on donating plasma if you've recently recovered from COVID-19. So I thought that was interesting you know, yeah. if, you, if you've been through that and you want to try to help people out. Yeah, one of our clients actually in New York City had approached us if uh, we had any knowledge or any mm -hmm. uh, any experience in uh, working with uh, uh, plasma organizations, which fortunately we don't. But it does seem to be a, a growing business right yeah. now. I want to talk about some recent experiences in uh, some centers. Mm -hmm. uh, just yeah, we're having a lot of issues with the uh, PPE and, and just reminding people that you have to change your masks between procedures. If you're using an N95, um, using it properly, making sure you have the fit testing done, making yeah. sure you're, you're seal checking when you put it on, and that if you want to conserve those N95s, you can uh, you know, wear a, a surgical mask over it as long as it completely covers it. Right, right. Um, and then change that outer mask between procedures, and you can wear the N95 um, until you actually remove it. If you remove it for lunch or for whatever reason, then you have to dispose of that and use a new one. Right. So those are the OSHA rules on that, and it's important that you 
follow them. It is not, well, I, I can't say this for all states, but uh, N95s are not uh, required. Uh, certainly, it's advisable in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. especially with aerosolizing, aerosolizing procedures. But uh, it is not uh, required, at least not in uh, many, if not most of the centers that we mm-hmm. uh, we work with here. Good idea, though. And, yes. you know, there is that KN95, which I've always mm-hmm. ragged on, but it is not a bad uh, mask. We actually own, what is it, four or five hundred of them right now? I know. We've yeah. been using them because, honestly, I think it's better than... A regular the paper mask. masks, yeah. and they say the paper masks are better than the cloth mask, which I had bought a few to begin with because, yeah. you know, they're cute. They've got all these little patterns and stuff, but they're saying they're, you know, I, I think anything is better than nothing, but, right. and, you know, an N95 is better than a KN95, but, yeah, you, you know, use the best that you can. Well, and I feel better when I'm wearing a KN95 mm-hmm. simply because it, there is a seal around it. I wear it with mm-hmm. a special band around the back yeah. that pulls it back so it's not irritating my ears, which is because I have big ears. And even more comfortable so, because it, you know, points out at the right. front so it's not pressed against your face. And I think just trying on different masks, if you find, because when we were in Hilton Head, yeah. we had somebody giving us a sales presentation and his mask kept slipping down below his nose, and it was really, you know, it was making us nervous. Yeah. And we'd comment, and he said, well, I've got a big jaw, and it just yeah. pulls it down. But then you either wear two of them or, you know, you, you look for a different mask. There's all different sizes and styles. Right. So, you know, that that's not a good excuse. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. And there are a lot of, even some of the KN95s that we have, there's a couple of them that are smaller, which fit mm-hmm. you, but don't fit my yeah. big face. Yeah, so. you just have to. Yeah. Put some effort into it. So another uh, major issue that's come up, we're going to try to uh, kind of figure out why this happened, but uh, is credentialing. Uh, We've had major issues recently with uh, some centers. And a lot of this, I think, might be a result of staff turnover. Like in a couple centers, the person that has been responsible for doing credentialing, sometimes for years, uh, never came back. Um, or there's been a lot of turnover or they're very short-staffed and, and the cred- person that was doing credentialing might be called in to do other things. Um, but it has been a major issue and, and uh, we generally up and I, sa- I say this, but you know now we are taking on responsibility for credentialing in some cases. Uh, it's never been one of those areas that we very much focused on. So, um, you know, another couple reasons that might be causing problems with credentialing is the rush to get new doctors on board as, as they come to surgery centers and try to get away from the hospitals. But, you know, what's been concerning to me, Sue, mm-hmm. is the lack of experience of some of these new credentialing coordinators. So yeah. I do have this story, you know, of uh, walking into a center and saying, okay, can I look at your credential files uh, to the woman that I was that was pointed out to me as the credentialing coordinator? And, and uh, she says, well, I don't have them. They're all in um, in storage. I said, well, if I were a surveyor coming in to do a survey mm-hmm. today, I would need to see, uh, you know, the credential file right away. And she says, okay, well, um, you know, I'll make sure I get them back here from the storage room. Um, and I, I said, okay, so why don't you just describe the process for me yeah. of taking care of credentialing? And she says, well, um, you know, I just file them. And I said, what, what do you mean? So just describe it. So you you uh, you get the application from, you know, the doctor or the reapplication. And then what's the next step you take? And, she's, and she looks at me like very bewildered. And she said, well, I, I put it in the file. Uh-huh. And I said, and then what do you do? I said, well, that's all I do. I put it into the file. Yeah. So, you know, the she had never been told that there was a process that mm-hmm. had to be done. It wasn't her fault. You yeah. know, I, I don't want to uh, rag on her, certainly. No, they uh, know that there are certain forms that they need. Yeah. Or they see a list of forms they need, but they don't realize there's a process to that. There's right. things that you have to, act to actually, you know, actively 
seek out, you know, the MPDB in that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and, and some of the th- issues that we've had too is that as as this has risen to the top, when we go to the owners mm-hmm. and we say, listen, you got a problem with credentialing, they say, well, what are you talking about? We, we're credentialed with all the insurance companies. I said, that's not the type of credentialing we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so there seems to be confusion mm-hmm. about the difference between payer credentialing yeah. and provider credentialing. We even had that issue a while ago mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Uh, an interview that we had in, in that, uh, you know, we interviewed an individual that uh, confused yeah. uh, the two processes and, and thought that, you know, the uh, service were the same between the two. So mm-hmm. uh, so it does, you know, understanding the terminology, making sure you're up to date on all the credentialing requirements is important. So uh, it, you're, you had this great idea of let's put together a full day seminar. Uh, we still haven't planned when it's going to mm-hmm. be. I hope it's going to be by, uh, by sometime before yeah, the end of the year. Yeah, as soon as we can do it because I think yeah, it's important. a big need out there. Well, and I think it will help save us some time mm-hmm. too because we are spending a lot of time uh, redoing yeah. credentialing, re-educating people on mm-hmm. credentialing. It's um, a complicated I, – I guess not complicated once you understand it, but there's more to it than I think a lot of people think. And I know we've had people that have just gotten very frustrated because they're not getting the responses from the doctors that they need. But they really have to understand it's, it's... it's important. It's going to come back on the center. Right, right. And it can be a condition level. Mm-hmm. Um, it most likely would be a condition level citation if it was yeah. a Medicare survey. So. And heaven forbid somebody does slip by that yeah. that shouldn't be credentialed. Right. So based on that, we decided to do that in our focus segment. Mm-hmm. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and we will focus on credentialing today. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. 
And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. Sue, back before you uh, joined us, we used to do uh, these cute little skits, mm-hmm. uh, probably for about maybe five, maybe ten episodes in the very beginning, uh, back when we had a little bit more originality and when uh, my dear friend <laughs> uh, Judy uh, D'Ambrosio was available. So I thought it would be kind of fun to go back to one of those skits we did in 2018 uh, that talked about credentialing. So let's take a quick listen. Okay, Amy, the, uh, the survey is going pretty well so far. I thank you for all of your help. Now, um, now let's, uh, let's, let's do the big thing here. Let's start tackling your credentialing files. Oh, um, um, could, can you give me a minute or two? <clears throat> We're not all that organized around here. Oh, I, I, can, I can certainly give you some time, but organized credentialing files, you know, are really important. Why don't you just look at it? Let's, let's just see what you've got. I'm sure it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> um, okay, I'll be right back. Okay. Um, okay. Here they are. That's everything. Um, well, you certainly got an awful lot here. Well, let's see what you're working with. Let's, uh, let's start with the first one. Mr. or Dr. Monk. He's an anesthesiologist, right? Oh, God, him? He hasn't done a procedure here for years. Then why is his file here? Well, I told you that we weren't very organized. Okay, okay. Let's move on. How about this one? It's pretty thin. Who is Dr. Stabler? Oh, yeah, him. He's a regular. A podiatrist. He's been here for quite a while. Well, let's see what you've got. There's the original application. That's good. Here's this delineation of privileges. Wait... It lists colonoscopies and endoscopies here, and it's signed by both he and the medical director. Why would a podiatrist have privileges in colonoscopy and endoscopies? See, it's just, we use the same form for everybody. Podiatrists, gastrologists, anesthesiologists, it's all the ists. It's just easier to use one form. Oh my. Uh, Well, we'll talk about that later. But look here, there is no other application application or reapplication since the original one in 2011. Well, why would there be? He's never left. He's been here that whole time. But but what about his peer review? What about continuing education, his malpractice? God, even his primary source verifications. All these things have to be checked every two years. Well, but that would take forever. Not if you make a process for yourself. Listen, don't panic. Let's look at the let's look at another one. Show me the uh, the file for Dr. Lannister. His was the procedure that I observed, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't made his folder yet. He's new. Oh, that's no problem. Let's just look at his application, his lineation of privileges, and his verifications. It's okay if it's not in a formal folder yet. No, I mean, I don't have any of those things yet. You must have. How can you be operating if you don't even have a signed lineation of privileges from the board? The board has to sign off on those? Okay, maybe you're right. We do have a problem.
So that that was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, we got to start doing that again. I think I you know I mm-hmm. think there there's something to be learned from going through uh, a somewhat humorous approach. One of the things that we one of the reasons we stopped doing is because we were always ragging on doctors. Yes. Um. So and, and we were getting some people commenting. Maybe doctors weren't always the bad guy. Now I yes. I might argue about that, but um. So so we did cut back. Although it was a lot of fun doing those mm-hmm. things, but a lot I think to be learned from that very short little skit. Mm-hmm. There is a lot that you have to know about credentialing, and that's what we're going to talk about. So let's start by talking about the most basic uh, uh, things that need to be started. In other words, mm-hmm. the start of that whole process, kind of the, you know, getting the background information about the doctors. Yep. So the first thing you do is have the physician complete the application or the reapplication. And I, I need to actually stop right there because one of mm-hmm. the things that was recently a problem in, in a center is that they had an application, but for the reapplication, uh, they just had this simple one-page form that said, is anything changed? Mm. Uh, and, and that's yeah. not enough. They have to go through the reattestations, you know, yeah. all those sign-offs. You, you don't have to have a complicated reapplication, mm-hmm. but, you know, you do have to have a reapplication and it does have to go through, you know, many of the same steps that you had before. Make sure that all that information is up to date. Yep, and I've also seen just where they just sign the bottom, where yeah. nothing's even filled in. Right. So after you get the application or the reapplication and they sign off on that application, make sure you obtain a list of the procedures that they wish to be privileged to perform for the delineation of privileges. Right. Very specific. That's right. Um, and, and we often refer to the delineation of privileges as the DOP. And as you said, it's mm-hmm. got to be specific. Can't just say orthopedic procedures. Yeah. Um, it's you know, It's got to list the type of orthopedic procedures you're going to do. And for the physicians, you should access the AMA database. And we'll provide some links to some of these things just in case mm-hmm. you don't have them or if... Uh, You've forgotten how to get involved with it. So you have to do primary source verification of education and training and a lot of different things. The AMA database for physicians is a very helpful tool because it does the primary source for you, uh, especially the education and training, which if you don't uh, if you don't run an AMA on a, on a newly privileged individual, uh, you're going to have to write a letter to those schools and to all the hospitals that they mm-hmm. trained at in order to get proof that they had been involved. This is what we call the uh, the uh, catch you catch me if you can. Uh, if anybody remember that movie <laughs> that from movie, way back yeah. where he just took somebody else's certificate, photocopied it, and put his name over it mm-hmm. uh, in order to prove that he was a doctor. Funny thing in that movie, of course, is he ended up becoming a better doctor than many of the doctors that uh, were actually working there, which I don't think is generally uh, what happens. But um, if yep. the uh, AMA profile is complete, you're going to be able to verify a number of things. You want to mention those? So that would be the education um, or any changes, residency programs, fellowships, uh, board certification or eligibility, and make sure the board certification is current. Uh, yeah, and that's actually kind of a, becoming a new issue now because mm-hmm. a lot of the older doctors, of course, they had board certification for life. But I don't believe that's the case anymore for doctors coming on board now. They they do have uh, uh, periods of time which they have mm-hmm. to uh, to get recertified. Yeah, and that's actually a, a good overall point is that sometimes you're looking these things up and you're doing it just mechanically. Okay, let me do this. I'll print it out, this yeah. one. I'll print it out. You have to actually look at what you're printing out and what you're you know, looking at for right. for those dates and and. You know, anything that you're supposed to be verifying, make sure you're you're actually paying attention to that. Um, the DEA status, the license status, making sure it's current, and any other issues with the physician. And again, we're talking about physicians, not CRNAs, podiatrists, or dentists. Right. That's so all those different. items are easier in today's environment because mm-hmm. you can pick up that information from the AMA profile. Uh, yes, you do have to pay for the AMA profile, but it's a relatively reasonable cost compared to the effort that would go into getting all this information another way. Mm-hmm. And there is an original 
Yeah, there's two types of AMA profiles that you can run. run. One is the full profile, which is what you do upon initial uh, credentialing privileging of a provider. And then there's a recredentialing profile, uh, which you use for reapplications, which does not include the education and mm-hmm. training modules. Okay. And sometimes, I guess, if you've fallen behind or something isn't quite right, sometimes we'll recommend just just do that full again. one again. Yeah, we've we've run into situations where we've taken on a new client who is, have lost or cannot locate all the information from the initial application. In that case, just run it again in total. And at least you won't get cited for not doing primary source verification mm-hmm. of education training. You might get cited for not having it done at the time that they originally applied. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least you'll have something on file to prove yeah. that. And for podiatrists, you will access the American Board of Podiatric Medicine, uh, where you can perform primary source verification. <clears throat> and again, you'll have to pay for the service, and we'll provide that link. And for CRNAs, you would access the National Board to perform that primary source verification. And that is actually a free service, and that's something at, we'll provide the link yeah, to. Yeah, that's at MBCRNA. So that's very easy. Uh, that, that's really probably the easiest of all things to uh, do primary source verification of. So after you do that, you got to verify the current licensure and any licensure issues. And to do this, you're going to want to go to your state's education department website and search for the practitioner na- um, name. Uh, you are going to have, by the way, you're going to have to do this for all practitioners in your facility, including the nursing staff. Print out that verification information. And make sure when you're printing it out that in the bottom corner, um, you know, the surveyor can see the date and time that you uh, mm-hmm. you access that information from the uh, the website. Uh, so you're going to want to print, as I said, you're going to want to print out the uh, verification information and make sure that if there's any issues with the license, for example, reprimands, et cetera, uh, you print those also out and include that in the credential file and bring it to the attention of the medical director uh, as part of his review of the file. So you go to the National Practitioner Data Bank at MPDB. We'll put the link. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Because nobody will listen to us. For for each practitioner, check their current NPDB report and print it out. Include that in the credentialing file. Make sure you also, that, that you make sure there's a date on there of when you checked it. Investigate any discrepancies between this report and the application. You must consider all malpractice cases in the determination of giving privileges. So again, just making sure you put to use the information that you're looking for. You're also going to want to check the OIG uh, website for the Medicare for any Medicare excluded individuals in, in their database that are applying at your organization. Uh, and, you know, this is just to make sure that they haven't been excluded from participation in the Medicare program. And again, print out this report so uh, uh, to show that they're not in the database. Even though the report will come back and say not found, mm-hmm. you want to print that report that shows that yep. it was not found. And if no AMA is available, you need to verify DEA and board certification independently. And that could be a lot of work, actually. Yeah. DEA is 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 not as difficult. Board certification would require quite a number of steps. So, uh, again, the AMA really saves you a lot of time if you have that available uh, so that you don't have to send letters to uh, the, the board, uh, the various boards, uh, or look up the DEA. Mm-hmm. If you do have to uh, verify the DEA directly, you go to the website at deadiversion.usdoj. .gov. And again, we'll provide a link for that. And you can do that information. You're going to need the medical director's DEA, his last name, and uh, their social security number for the login. But once you log in, you'll be able to get a screen that asks for the DEA number of the doctor that you're verifying. And this will give you a verification screen that you would want to print off for proof of the primary source verification of their DEA. Mm -hmm. And to check the references and hospital affiliations, 
You'd send letters to each individual reference asking for their assessment of the individual skills, knowledge, and practice. And, and, and also, and, and that you should provide a copy of their uh, delineation of privileges to verify mm-hmm. that that, that, that uh, reference is one of the things that, that yeah. they are qualified to do. Um, send letters to each hospital. The physician is listed that they have privileges at asking for verification of their status, and if the hospital is aware of any malpractice suits, restrictions on privileges, etc. Also provide them a list of the procedures that they're requesting privileges for and ask the hospital to verify that they have the same privileges there. Now, I know it can be difficult to get much information from hospitals, unfortunately. Which is why, because you remember, we're not uh, not an organization, ASCs are not organizations that are uh, suitable for training new individuals. So Mm -hmm. uh, we expect that anybody that comes to work at an ASC to already uh, have the knowledge base to be able to perform those various procedures. Um, So in order to verify that they have that knowledge base, you're going to want to get it from the references or from the hospital or or both uh, just to help you through that process. And then you want to verify that um, they have malpractice coverage and that it's current um, and just make sure that this is is monitored. Yeah, because that probably is only going to last a year. So Mm -hmm. you're going to have to go in there every year to make sure that the most current uh, malpractice uh, deck page, as we call it, Mm -hmm. declaration page. is. So make sure you have some type of mechanism that will trigger you some type of, you know, you do have to be very organized to make sure you're not missing these dates as they come up. And that brings up a very good point, too, is that whereas maybe the administrator um, would oversee this function, there is an awful lot of detail. Um, and uh, this really is a task that is well suited for an administrative assistant uh, who can at least gather this information, write the letters, do these you know online verifications. But ultimately, it has to be looked at by the administrator and/or the medical director, you know, for, to make that recommendation to mm-hmm. the governing body. Then you'll review the malpractice claims history to determine that there are no problems that are noticeable in their claims history. And so th- the way that's going to happen is in the application. The uh, the physician will provide a list of all of their uh, past malpractice cases um, that uh, not only those that have been settled, but those that are active right now. The National Practitioner Data Bank will list anything that has been settled. Hopefully, it'll list anything that's been mm-hmm. settled. Um, and uh, sometimes, uh, and I really recommend this, you also get a malpractice claims history uh, printout from the malpractice carrier that will list any existing uh, malpractice claims out there. Um, so this is uh, very important, and, and it's important. Sue, you mentioned it earlier. Not only do you want to um, gather this information, but you got to look at it. Uh, I still remember. I've probably told this story on on the podcast before, but uh, working with this uh, young administrative assistant who was tasked with pulling together the credential files, and I pulled out um, a uh, NPDB report. Uh, and, you know, it was like 80 pages long. There were a lot of malpractice cases in there. And I said to this administrative assistant, you know, wow, this is a lot. And she says, oh, yeah, I guess. I says, didn't you look at this? Didn't you bring it to anybody's attention? And she says, no, I just put it together here and mm-hmm. threw it in the file. You've got to do something about those things. You've yeah, got to. checking off the check boxes, but not. Right. Without actually making sure that we know what's happened, you know. Now, in this particular case, unfortunately, he was one of those doctors that gets sued a lot. You know, he's in one of those specialties that mm-hmm. is subject to a lot of lawsuits. And in the end, it was, I won't say it was okay, um, but, uh, you know, it was understandable given the profession that he was in or the specialty that he was in. Uh, and it's going to be common, but you still have to address those issues. So uh, make sure that there's a, a physician report card for each of the practitioners that shows there's no major issues. So this report card is the equivalent or 
is really the summary of all the peer review that you've done in the past year. You should be doing a peer review, a physician report. I call it a physician report card. It can be any number of uh, names, though. It's like a physician su- annual summary, et cetera. Uh, you should have one each year for all of your practitioners and, and, and use that to uh, demonstrate that peer review has been done on each of your people that are or physicians that are being recredentialed. And make sure that the initial orientation was done and that the annual physician training is documented. This is a huge issue, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. We've been running into this a lot. I still remember when I first brought this subject up, I think it was about seven or eight years ago at a national conference, uh, that actually I I said, you know, you got to make sure that physicians are, you know, properly properly oriented to the organization, have mandatory training. And I can remember somebody in the audience saying, I want a reference on that. I've never heard of this. That's ridiculous. No doctor is ever going to want to go through training orientation. I said, well, it is the standard. It has to be done. Um, you know, you got to imagine if uh, a physician is working in your place, he's got to know some very basic mm-hmm. things in mm-hmm. addition to the more complicated ones, yeah. but he needs to know how to transfer a patient. He needs to know what your peer review process is. He needs to know what to do in an emergency. What emergency equipment is available? What are the, yeah, where uh, is it? Where is everything? Yeah. So they've got to go through this training and that training has got to be documented. You can get into some pretty serious trouble if a surveyor comes in and there's no documentation of that in the records. Mm-hmm. And make sure a new delineation of privileges form is completed and signed off by the applicant. Make sure it is that it's signed by the medical director and a board member to approve their privileges. And I guess this is a funny thing, too. Make sure the boxes are all filled out. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've gone in and done a survey where, you know, they have three columns like, uh, um, you know, app, uh applied for, in other words, mm-hmm. a list of all the privileges that the practitioner is applying for, uh, approved by, you know, the medical director or maybe approved by the governing body. And the only thing that's filled out is the first one. And I go back to the uh, center and say, well, this is all well and great. He applied for all these, but the rest of the boxes are blank, which means he has no privileges, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, they have to quickly go fix that problem. So make sure that that delineation of privileges, which is arguably the most important document that comes out of the privileging process, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, properly completed and available uh, for the board to uh, to sign off on when the board meeting comes. Yep. And the signature of the medical director should be dated the date of the temporary privileges, if they're granted. Signature of the board member should be the date that the board of directors approved the privileges. And I think that timing is well, yeah. I think I know that timing is very important, and that can be a problem too. This is still popping up uh, a lot, where uh, people will grant temporary privileges to a physician for like ninety days or one hundred and twenty days, and the reason they do that is because the board meeting has uh, is not going to occur for you know another couple months, mm-hmm. and that's acceptable as long as the uh, the temporary privileges are granted based upon a complete application that that's gone through the rigorous process of review, yeah. credentialing, and privileging. Yeah, so this isn't like emergency privileges or, or some, you know, partial process. This is the full credentialing. It's just really getting you to that date so you're not having a bunch of board meetings to um, approve people. Like you do with one of our clients. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we have one client Every that doesn't. Every two days. <laughs> yeah. We, this particular client meeting. does not have uh, temporary privileges, temporary privileges yeah. uh, uh, capability in yeah. their organization. We we are trying to get them to do that, but they, <laughs> for some reason, like to have Sue write their minutes every five minutes. So. <laughs> Um, and, and I guess I need to kind of point out the importance of making sure that there are specific dates 
for those privileges and that those dates are no longer than what your bylaws say they would be. Uh, for example, in New York State, it, your privileges can only be for a, a maximum of two years. Um, and when we say two years, we mean two years, not two years in one month or two years in one day. It's for two years uh, from the date. <laughs> right, right. Uh, from the date of the temporary privileges. Mm -hmm. So if they, mm -hmm. if the medical director granted temporary privileges on March 1st, but the board didn't meet until June, those privileges go from March 1st through February 28th or 29th, depending upon leap year. And, you know, while we're talking about dates, you have to be very careful at the beginning, too. What is, uh, some problems that we've seen? Yeah. Uh, so what we've seen is that, um, that we might have an application that's been completed, but the doctor forgot to sign off mm -hmm. on the attestation and the waiver, uh, which basically said that, listen, you can go out and check on me all you want. Uh, that letter has to be signed. Or Before that, you can go and check the AMA. The, the and, National and Practitioner Data Banks or send a letter to the hospital. So mm -hmm. uh, we've run into that. Now, you know, if everything's done right and the, the, the application is completed or reapplication is completed and the doctor signs off on it, you're fine. But sometimes they forget to sign that, or let's face mm -hmm. it, often these applications or reapplications are signed or are filled out by their office, which is acceptable. Yeah. But the doctor still has to sign that attestation and complete mm -hmm. that. Uh, and I think what I've seen sometimes is that that reapplication or that application yeah. comes uh, before that signature is mm -hmm. done, or maybe they they send it over and they say, "Listen, when the doc's over at the yeah. uh, the center next time, maybe he'll sign it for you." Or I but, think sometimes not even just understanding the process, like we said, you're just okay. I have to get this, this, this paper. They don't think about, well, you need that signature before yeah. you can check things. I just, I need that. I need to check this. And they just do it. Right. You know, and you don't realize that there's a process to yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. And as we're wrapping all this up, you want to review all of the data to make sure that this is a provider that you even want on your medical staff. Investigate any inconsistencies that you see and make sure the medical staff executives are aware of the malpractice history and any licensure issues. Um, if you're in doubt, ask for more information from the provider. And don't hesitate to do that. Uh, you know, I remember, oh, many, many, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I was working with a center, and uh, this one uh, doctor came through with some massive uh, malpractice cases, you know, multi-million dollar uh, cases. And they and, and I was tasked by the center to review their application to make sure it was ready. And I said, you know something? Um, and I was talking to the administrator. I said, neither you or I want to make a decision about this. You know, these are big lawsuits. Let's take it to the board. And at least the board, you know, I said, maybe the, the board is just going to say, hey, this has nothing to do with it. Um, but at least it wasn't our decision and we can document in the minutes this decision. And I, I was so proud of this organization. They looked at that information that the administrator and I provided to the board and they said, you know something, you're right. Let's uh, let's bring this doctor in. Let's talk to him about it. And that's what they did. And uh, they ended up granting the privileges to him. But they took that process very seriously. And if it weren't for us um, bringing that out, mm -hmm. uh, making it available, uh, you know, we would have circumvented that system. And and they, at least now after that, you know, they had a well documented process. Now you've got to be very careful about the way you document in the minutes. Obviously, you don't want to say outright uh, in the board minutes all this information, mm -hmm. but you do want to have a um, a reference to that conversation that occurred and documented in the uh, in the credentials file yeah. what uh, what transpired. And that is a good point. Um, as the administrator or the HR person or whoever is doing this, it's not your decision who to bring on, right. but it really is your job to notice these things and make sure to bring any issues to the attention of the board. 
Yeah, this is a very complex process. It should not be uh, given to somebody that's not detail-oriented. Um, it should not be given to somebody who has 20,000 other duties. Mm -hmm. uh, that's happened a lot. You know, in this particular case that I, I told the story about the individual who just thought throwing the file, the uh, the document in the file was yeah. enough. She was actually the center's uh, insurance verification person. And I said, you know, when I asked her how many hours she was dedicated to and this, she just said probably about an hour a week. And they had over 130 practitioners. So oh. clearly there was not enough time no. uh, to do this. And they, they ended up hiring a full-time person uh, who were now in the process of training uh, to do this. And, and that gets to another point is the importance of doing the training of these individuals, mentoring them on that. And I will say this, and Sue, this is why you and I have decided that it's important to put together this training. Mm -hmm. There really is no training program out there right now. Um, you know, we have, you know, individual one-hour sessions about credentialing maybe that are put on by the major organizations, but there's no full day training. So I think that uh, what you and I are going to be putting together is really a, a good, it's going to become a, a very valuable tool that you can provide uh, to new credentialing coordinators, administrative assistants, or even administrators yeah. who want to know more about that process. So yeah, we do we, promise you we're going to work on that soon. Yeah. And we do see a lot of times um, somebody may leave suddenly. And so there, there's no training for the yeah. new person. They just jump into it and, and, you know, trial by fire, try to do the best they can. I guess we can make a sales pitch here right now, too, and just kind of state that if you are in that situation, uh, don't stop, you know, don't don't wait. You need to get your credentialing up to date. You need to get it up to date very quickly, you know, before surveyors show up. And, and the challenge for you is you can't let those deadlines go past. So when the privileges have expired, you don't want to have a gap in that coverage mm -hmm. or that, uh, that privilege uh, between it. So as soon as you identify a problem, you know, uh, get somebody in there right away uh, or, you know, like a new uh, coordinator and make sure you train them as quickly as possible. And of course, Amateur Healthcare Strategies is always there to help. And, and hopefully, Sue, we'll put together that program very soon and uh, uh, we'll be able to give some good advice. So I hope this has been helpful. We'll put a lot of uh, references in the uh, show notes for this uh, so that uh, you can uh, at least click on a couple links and learn a little bit more than you probably know already about the credentialing process. You're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC. And in this section, we highlight upcoming events. So uh, if you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. And I guess I need to kind of repeat what we said uh, for a good six months now, we are just not getting a lot of information about this. I don't think people uh, think to uh, send us information about virtual conferences, mm -hmm. which are uh, the rave right now. So I think please do keep us up to date. We really don't have the time to go out there and search all 50 states to make sure we're on top of this. Yeah. And uh, we'd be glad to include that on the podcast. Uh, to that end, though, uh, Beth LaBoyer, our, our dear friend out in California with the California Ambulatory Surgery Association, uh, which is at casurgery.org, by the way, has gone big time into the virtual conferences. And I did one with her a couple weeks ago. I can't remember exactly how long, maybe a month ago now, uh, and had a lot of fun. It was a great, well-received uh, conference. Underway right now, uh, it started on November 5th, which was a couple days ago, and continues on the 12th and the 19th. Uh, they're doing an infection prevention and surveillance in the ASC seminar. This is an incredible conference. This has been going on for many, many years. Um, similar to what we have done, you know, for uh, as part of the podcast here, but this is really focused 
uh, specifically on California. And as I said, they've been doing this for a long time. This is a great conference for infection control coordinators uh, in California or even outside of California for that matter. And will help to demonstrate to surveyors that you are up to date on all the, the latest in infection prevention. So uh, definitely sign up. Go to casurgery.org for more information. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a recording of this too. So if you missed the first one on the 5th, uh, the 12th is coming up, you should be able to sign up for that. And of course, the ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement Fall Seminar. It's coming up. Uh, this is a follow-up to our spring seminar, which was a huge success. Uh, and a recording, by the way, of the seminar is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. And we have knocked a $100 off that conference fee. So if you wish, go to the website. And you can purchase access mm-hmm. to that uh, seminar, which we did in, in June. Um, so save the date. The fall conference will be December 3rd and 4th, broadcast out of our studios here. Uh, and in uh, uh, from her mountaintop retreat, uh, Christina <laughs> Benton will be talking from North Carolina. So this is a joint production of the ASC podcast with John Galey and Christina Benton of Coding Compliance Management. And this conference is going to include information on the final 2021 HOPD ASC CMS regulatory uh, updates, uh, more finance and accounting and reimbursement topics, just extending our discussion from the fr- uh, spring conference. And, um, you know, I think you're going to learn a lot about the revenue cycle and reimbursement, advanced financial management, budgeting and financial projections, strategic planning. So uh, sign up is available at our website at ASCpodcast.com. And Sue, I know you've been handling some of the registration functions. We are already 150 percent higher uh, than our, our spring conference. So pl- uh, we have uh, a large capacity, so that's not an issue. But you do want to sign up pretty quickly uh, so that uh, we can get the information out to you as soon as we can. And the ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now going to be a virtual conference, January 11th, 19th, and 25th. This popular seminar, which is, again, now a virtual event, provides essential training for ASC billers and coders. During three afternoons in January, you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements. And, of course, probably the most exciting thing that's uh, happened uh, for administrators is the Administrators Boot Camp. It's going to prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Boot Camp, which is a comprehensive program to prepare ASC administrators for the challenge of leading and managing an ambulatory surgery center. So this this boot camp is really designed for administrators and uh, senior nursing leadership in an ASC and includes uh, all of, uh, a bunch of reading materials that I've uh, written, uh, virtual private con- uh, consultations with me, and uh, the highlight, which is an intensive four-day virtual conference presented in January 2021. Uh, the program is designed for new administrators, administrators that want to enhance their skills skills, and administrators that might wish to prepare for certification as a CASC individual. The ASC boot, Administrators Bootcamp is the industry's most comprehensive preparation for the role of the ASC Administrator. And of course, this is presented by John Gailey, one of the nation's leading experts on the ASC industry and the host of the ASC podcast with John Gailey. You can tell that this marketing <laughs> material came from outside of the podcast, obviously. Um, and it's a highly interactive program. I think, Stu, you and I are really looking forward to doing mm-hmm. this because we know with the limited cohort of students, um, and it is filling up fast, I should note, so you should sign up very quickly mm-hmm. because we are going to limit the number of people that are involved. Yep. Uh, it's going to be done through uh, private virtual meetings and a four-day interactive video conference allowing you to see the speakers and other attendees if they wish and to interact much as you would in a live conference. So in addition to the slide and other resources. You get copies of all the books and two personalized, I guess we call them Zoom sessions. 
uh, with me. So, so for more information, go to the ASCPodcast.com website. And we want to always remind people to become a patron member of the podcast to help support our, our efforts here. Also, uh, there's a lot of benefits to being a patron member, including access to previous conferences, uh, the membership website that includes, uh, you know, member resources such as links to CMS resources, credentialing, FDA, OSHA, document library that includes rules and regulations, example policies, infection control resources, example forms and checklists. Probably one of the, the most uh, used sections of it that is over 60 disaster drill scenario kits. Mm-hmm. I think, and those, a lot of those have been prepared by our, our colleague, uh, Alex Borneman. I think they, does he have a zombie apocalypse uh, disaster scenario in there, Sue? I, <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm that sure he's working on I'm one. I'm sure he, he is. <laughs> yes. So uh, definitely go to the website at ASCPodcast.com. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff travel costs to conferences, which uh, actually are zero right now, the equipment costs, since we do need to buy a new board here, <laughs> and, of course, production costs. For more information, you may visit asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron, as we said, by going to our website. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode, as it is for all of our episodes, is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Lori Rodericks, and Denise Van Buren. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.